I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the podcast in which I interview writers and artists working in comics and other mediums. In fact, anyone connected with making comics, including publishers, will make guest appearances, and that's why I bring to you this special bonus episode this week. On today's episode, my guests are publisher Mark Rogers and President Mandy Hart of Cave Pictures Publishing. How did Mark and Mandy meet? And why did they decide to take the plunge into the choppy waters of comic book publishing? Mark and Mandy will discuss the mission of Cape Publishing and the comics they have planned for this year and into the next decade. What does it take to be a Cave Pictures Publishing comic? Why did Mark and Mandy use the story of Plato's Cave to explain their publishing philosophy? Do they have future trades planned? How about other media outlets in the future? What is their five-year plan? Coming up this month on future interviews, I take a deeper dive into some of the comics we discuss with the creative teams. And so up next on Thursday, my regularly scheduled day for the podcast, Meredith Finch returns to Creator Talks to talk about her upcoming miniseries being published through Cave Pictures Publishing, The Light Princess. Today's interview is brought to you by the comic book shop in Wilmington, Delaware at 1855 Marsh Road at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. And now join me as I spotlight a new producer of comic books, publisher Mark Rogers and President Mandy Hart of Cave Pictures Publishing. Here now on Creator Talks. Mark and Mandy, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. Great to talk. Enjoying the time. Were you both comic book readers growing up? And if so, what did you read? You know, I'll start with that. I mean, I grew up as a kind of a silver age baby, although I'm not a silver age kid. I had a family little cottage in Illinois and the house next to us uh, had a treasure trove of silver age comics. When I grew up, they were kind of summer fair and uh, you know, all those Kurt Swan and all those comics that, you know, were illustrated into the early 70s from DC. Those were kind of my bread and butter um, growing up. I did graduate like we all kind of do into Marvel. Eventually found the kind of Silver Age Marvel of Kirby and Lee. Really fell in love with, at that point, Jack Kirby's art. So I followed Kirby all through the Bronze Age and Commandy and and really kind of lived into um, that kind of phase of Kirby at DC. Andy will chuckle, you know, that's the one remnant of, of those years on my walls or a couple Kirby originals. So I was, I did grow up with a strong affinity for comic books. And I'm the opposite, actually. I did not grow up reading comics. In my childhood, I was really into performing arts, into theater, really into classic movies and musicals. I went through different phases from Audrey Hepburn and Marilyn Monroe to Cary Grant and just kind of the whole era of classic Hollywood films and ended up going to film school later in life. I'd always been a voracious reader and loved the moving image. And it was interesting after having been to film school and had practiced storyboarding for my own projects to then subsequent to that, discover comics and graphic novels and realize how beautifully they blended my two loves of the moving image and text and created this seamless piece of art in between the two. And in many ways, 
comics and graphic novels, as has been attested to by Hollywood, they're perfect for adaptation to the screen. And in a lot of ways, they, they allow you to create your own movie in your own head as you're reading them. Well, you both have excellent taste and a very solid background. <laughs> it's sort of like mine. I grew up reading a lot of Silver Age books, even though I didn't read them in the Silver Age. Right, but right. I had reprints and things like that. And, oh, this is great. And I read them into the Bronze Age. And again, you know, Kirby. And even now I'm starting to discover people, even though I'm late in the game, Kurt Swan as such. And, and also the movies. You know, I love watching the old movies now. I really get into those. So we have a lot of similar tastes. <laughs> now... The decision to get into publishing, that is a risky one. And I know it took you a few years to raise the capital for it. Why did you decide to get into publishing comics? I'd say in some ways, that's where Mandy and I kind of began to overlap in our interests. You know, I got involved with a few film projects starting about five years ago. They're all independent films, or at least they're independently financed and produced. Went through tons of scripts. You know, once the word gets out that you've got some capital to invest, I mean, there's no shortage of people pitching ideas. It's a slog. I often remember just kind of in my mind's eye going back to the some of the illustrated stories that I just refresher in my own mind. And I thought, this is crazy. There's got to be some uh, way to just kind of engage back with the comic industry. And then, of course, discovered that it's a seedbed for content, for streaming and theatrical releases. So really good to appreciate that. Secondly, you know, the the cost and the risk of developing a story straight for the screen is really high in many ways, especially high if you go ahead and produce it without distribution. So as I think other folks have discovered long before me, I thought it'd be interesting to go ahead and develop stories, get them in the market, let those at the market itself kind of stress test the stories. Are they interesting? How do people respond to them? And then possibly work with studios or others to develop those into subsequent visual storytelling. But yeah, it kind of came out of that experience for me and my own frustrations in some of the film work that I had done. And for me, I came to this project partly through an overlap of interest between the two of us. While film is a first love for me, subsequent to film school and working in, in filmmaking for a couple of years, I went to law school. And intellectual property was my focus in law school. So comics as the, an opportunity to develop solid IP that can live in multiple formats was really attractive to me. I mean, it's been an incredible learning experience starting Cave Pictures Publishing and going all the way from the production of comics to the printing and distribution and marketing and now getting into actual readership, getting in, getting into the stores and being able to exhibit at conventions and connect with readers over content that we've been gestating and loving for, for months and now are able to share. So it was probably my love of film that was the impetus for me, but also just an engagement with intellectual property overall and the development of stories that can live in multiple media. But it's not really a concern. Like if you want to do a space sci-fi opera versus just something set in medieval times, well, budget's not really a concern. You can draw anything. You know, really, it's just a matter of who's doing the drawing. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing about comics is that, and we probably all discovered this reading older comics, is that there's a certain moral lesson, especially in those older books, that appealed to me as a kid 
because it sets some very good values of what is right, just, and good. Mm-hmm. And, and comics still do that today. And of course, they stretch into other things as well. But for kids, that's a great way to get introduced to those ideas through comics. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have said, I won't say who, people know about this if they read media about comics, that comics are just for kids and people need to grow up. Well, (laughs) I like your opinion on that because you can explore a lot of very deep themes in comics, as we know, and as you will explore through your creators and some upcoming books that you have. So what are your thoughts about that on comics or for kids? You know, Chris, it's interesting. I, um, so because I kind of skipped, I'd say a couple decades, I really kind of missed the kind of explosion of the graphic novel as a medium to explore, I'd say, some of these deeper, almost more mature themes. And um, I kind of got reintroduced into them or got introduced to them through uh, Gene Yang, who I've gotten to know, American Born Chinese, and Boxers and Saints, and some other of his, his work. One of our goals from the get-go with Cave was to really produce serialized content that would live well. It's a long tale. It's a graphic novel as well. I'm reading uh, Rudu Madan's Exit Wounds now. She's an Israeli writer-illustrator. So we've been, I've been spending a lot of time, I think Mandy has too to some extent, really kind of learning to understand some of the opportunities that graphic novels provide and the medium that they are for complex literary storytelling as well. So I think the growth of these industries uh, in tandem, comics and graphic novels really have opened the door widely for complex storytelling. And I would say it doesn't take much time looking at the plethora of art and illustrations within comics to realize how sophisticated the medium is. And while there are comics that are developed, drawn, written for kids, there's a whole lot more that are written for an adult audience. And seeing how many recent titles are really, they bring a fine art approach and style to the artwork and are just beautiful. It's like anything you would see in a, in a museum or an art gallery that is definitely only going to be appreciated by readers of a certain age. So, yes, there are comics that are geared for kids, but there's a lot out there that is particularly it's specifically developed for an older audience from both the story, the complexity of the story itself and the choice of vocabulary and text to the artwork and the complexity of the artwork and the style that is chosen. Well, as a longtime comic book reader, and as probably most of my audience knows, that comics certainly aren't for kids. So they're well aware. It's really the general public that doesn't always understand that. And there should be comics for kids, certainly, but they don't understand that it's actually grown with the age of the older readership. So I have two questions for you. First, well, one's a statement. Explain your company mission. And the question is, how are you going to try to reach those adults who don't read comics, who really would be interested in the subject matter and themes that you're exploring through your titles. I'll let Mandy kind of talk more about the company. I will say this though, the felt need that I I have is as kids do begin to age out of comics for kids and are looking for content that has more, I'd say complex storylines in terms of the moral dilemmas that are presented to the hero or the his or her adversary, the, uh, just the real world complexity that goes basically from silver age, you know, 
DC into modern age Marvel. Uh, a lot of that, as you know, can get quite dark and and can be very uh, challenging for I'd say for some parents to be comfortable for kids maybe that are in that 15, 16, 17 age still at home who are looking for I'd say, I'd say more complex storytelling. And uh, I'd say in some ways that space is a space that at a film level we're looking to develop content. And therefore, for me at least, is the case with Cave Pictures Publishing. It's content that could be interesting to that demographic as well. To your first question about Cave's mission, we see ourselves as a wall for modern myth-making and draw the company name from Plato's allegory of the cave. And the idea that for much of human history, the way human beings have processed through their deepest existential questions is through art, through cave painting originally, and through stories, and now with us through comics and through stories in that format and that medium that deal with some of those deep questions of human existence and spirituality and questions of moral responsibility. For example, with our fairy tale, The Light Princess, it's a beautiful fairy tale. It's fun for young children to read and they'll get the story on one level, but for parents and adult readers that read the story, they're going to get multiple layers of meaning below the surface beyond what a child will take away from it. And that's our vision for all of our stories is to have those layers of meaning and to allow the reader to engage with the story and his or her own journey of life and the themes that are embedded in the story as part of their own experience and their own quest for meaning and for answers to those deep questions. In terms of how we reach those readers, we're doing our best <laughs> to connect with as many readers as we can. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Through podcasts such as your own, we have a couple of publicists that have put stories out, pitched our stories and allowed for or arranged for reviews of some of our content. We have a website and we have social media that we're utilizing to raise awareness, put the word out. And we are exhibiting at various conventions. We were at two Comic-Cons last fall. We're going to a couple retailer conventions this spring. We'll be at a few homeschooling conventions this spring. We're just trying to have a breadth of public experience and opportunity to connect directly with both readers and shop owners to let them know that we're out here, but also to hear from them how they decide what to read or for shop owners, how they decide what to buy and what their suggestions are as to how we can connect with more readers and how we can serve the reading public even better with both our content and our outreach efforts. Based on your mission, how do you select proposals for a comic? What are the criteria that you have because you probably have a lot of rejections. Is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than to be published? You know? <laughs> so what do writers and artists have to do to be accepted and what fits your model? Our model 
at least to begin with, was for a limited slate of titles. We have space for eight titles total, four in the first year, four in the second. And for our first year titles, it was a combination of The Light Princess was pre-existing, and we knew that we wanted to do an adaptation of George MacDonald's Light Princess because he was such an influential writer to a generation that a lot of contemporary readers are familiar with, like J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Madeline Engel, Lewis Carroll. George MacDonald was a godfather for all of them and heavily influenced both their personal and professional lives. But a lot of people aren't aware of George MacDonald. So we wanted to do an adaptation of one of his works that was pre-existing. Mark had actually written a screenplay inspired by Ian Forster's short story, The Machine Stops. Mark took that, developed the story that is titled The Blessed Machine. And we brought Jesse Hamm on board to adapt that into a comic series. It is an allegory itself, and it is in the sci-fi genre. So that was a pre-existing story as well that we selected for our first year slate. And then the other two titles, The No Ones and Appalachian Apocalypse, are both wholly original concepts that were pitched to us by contacts in the industry that we had pre-existing relationships with. So when we launched the company, we already had commitments for those four. We knew that we wanted those to be our inaugural titles. And they're all so solid in the storytelling, in the complexity of the themes, and in the breadth of genres. We've got fairy tale, superhero, sci-fi, and zombie. (laughs) So we've got the whole gamut. And then for our second year, we've committed to two titles thus far. One was another wholly original concept pitched to us by a contact in the entertainment industry. And we just loved his story, the themes that it contains. And it's a great all ages tale the art is wonderful. Um, we're keeping it under wraps because we're in early early days, but we're really excited about that one. And then the second one is another adaptation of an existing work that we were aware of from the start. And it's a pretty complex tale, but we're excited at how it is being adapted and being made more accessible for the contemporary readership. And it's going to be a really unique piece, both in the story itself, but also in the art. So for the two titles that are currently in development, one was pre-existing, one was pitched to us. And we've had to pass on a lot of good stories just because either we don't have the capacity for it or the artist who has pitched it is at a different place and not quite ready to jump into production of their story. Um, It's hard sometimes to pass by stories that you'd love to be able to take and run with. But for us thus far, it's been kind of three modes of development. Some of it's wholly original pitched to us. Some of it we've developed in-house and some of it was pre-existing. Well, you're in the publishing arena now. Mm-hmm. And there are risks associated with being in publishing, as we all know. And it sounds like you already have an answer to one of my questions about how are you going to be successful and not fall into some of the 
difficulties that other publishers are struggling with, i.e. layoffs, restructuring, you're staying within your capacity. You're not going beyond that. What else are you doing to make sure that the company is successful? I would say that if we were dependent fully on the existing comic store market buyer, we wouldn't be serving the broader needs of the comic industry, as well as I'd say we wouldn't have a viable market strategy. So we've we've realized from the get-go that there are probably folks out there who are looking for called redemptive storytelling and may not be comfortable or may not have really experienced going into a local comic store and sifting through all the titles to find content that they would find resonant. What we are trying to do is by reaching out into non-traditional avenues of potential audience. We're hoping to both grow the audience ourselves, but also, frankly, find some new readers and consumers for comic stores. I mean, we're big fans of local comic store plays in a community. They're gathering places, board games. They're just a as a unique resource. And we'd love to, by outreaching, you know, whether it's to homeschool audiences or to maybe people who look for spiritual content, but don't want to find it in kind of more, I'd say, kind of on the nose content. If we can find audiences that would be new to comic stores and be resonant with our content, we would love to have them become consumers into local stores. And so, that, so we are doing aggressive outreach into those non-traditional audiences. Chris, one last thing, just on, not to get too philosophical, but we are named after Plato's allegory of the case. So <laughs> I would say that, you know, you know, the culture right now is, I'd say with the increase of suicide rates and all the measurements of increasing loneliness and isolation, I'd say there's a broad felt needs for stories that can help be guides, if you would, to meaning in life. I think that's the real unique value is what Joseph Campbell observed about myth. J.R. Tolkien, you saw on our website, one of our quotes that we kind of anchored ourselves with is, legends and myths are largely made of truth, Tolkien said. And indeed, they present aspects of it that can only be received in the mode. In other words, there's truth to be found for people, but story is the only way often you can find truth. Uh, so I just think story is more critical than ever in a time when people are, are having a difficult time finding meaning in their lives. How will you measure success of your publishing venture? For me, I think my primary metric is less quantitative, more qualitative. We've received a number of emails and messages on social media from readers that have discovered our content that are really enthusiastic about it whether it's, oh, I'm so excited to actually see George McDonald in a comic book or the zombie series, Appalachian Apocalypse, they come across it and it's new content to them. Just hearing from readers that are excited and are going to the stores and buying the titles or pre-ordering the titles and sharing with friends and family about our content, that to me is success because that's our whole vision is to reach readers and engage them with a story that will really captivate their imagination and one that they will want to share with the people in their lives that they care about and that are part of their own life journey. So that's been really rewarding for me and is why I'm so excited that we're going to be at multiple conventions this spring. It's just the opportunity to talk with readers and with store owners and hopefully hear from them what about 
cave's titles excites them, what do they want to see, and get some live feedback that will help guide us to have more success in the future. A lot of publishers are trying to figure out how to survive as print shrinks. Mm-hmm. And you are looking at various distribution channels, mm-hmm. like you said, outside of just comic book shops, which are very important. But to reach those adults that don't read comics, of course, you have to go outside and be available in different formats to reach as many as possible and connect them with a message that may resonate with them about these deeper subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How else are you preparing to adapt to this shift from print to digital? So we have basically three steps of distribution. First is the floppies distributed directly to comic stores, and that will be followed by digital distribution on Comixology and Kendall about two months after each issue hits the stores. It will be available to purchase digitally. And then our third step is to do a compiled graphic novel version of each series that would be available in more mainstream stores like Walmart and Barnes and Noble. So we're exploring how to create that channel for each of our titles, whether it be as an independent distributor of the title or as a co-publisher with an established publishing publication house that already is in those markets, already has connections to those stores. And then we're always open to other options that are not yet on the table, like Kickstarter, crowdfunding, and doing direct bulk sales to other distributors, uh, like distributors in the homeschool community. So we're kind of exploring all, all avenues and are constantly trying to be creative and push outside the box. My final question is one of those questions people tend to get in interviews, job interviews. Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see Cave Publishing at that point? You know, Chris, I think my view on this one is, as it needs to be, I think is a longer view of creating a channel of content, a kind of a brand that begins to mean something, that people have a sense that the content we develop and take to market will be thoughtful, high levels of craftsmanship provocative, but but deeply meaningful, spiritually resonant, but not kind of didactic or, you know, kind of coming from any particular perspective that's proselytized or anything, but just is deeply meaningful. And I think if we can achieve that in the first couple of years and get a brand positioning, I think the content is going to come to us. Um, I think our investors will be patient in that regard. We're looking at some co-developing projects right now, actually, that would be in the supernatural horror space that I'd love to partner with some other uh, comic publishers in that genre. And so we're, we really are looking at all kinds of different avenues of ways to just develop and get new content to the market. So five years from now, I hope we're still in this game. I hope we're still producing great stories. And uh, hopefully we're talking again on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) I certainly hope so. I've read some of the books that have already come out and some to come out, and the creators will be guests on my show coming up in the weeks ahead, and I think everyone's going to really be interested in what they have to say. It's important to explore a lot of these deeper issues about our existence, uh, because no matter what your faith is, there is a, call it a spiritual side to everyone, that if you ignore that, you're ignoring part of yourself. I actually have the Cave Pictures book that you gave me at Baltimore Comic Con. 
Great. There's a quote in there that says from David Foster Wallace, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. By the way, this book that you gave me, this sneak preview, is that available digitally anywhere? It is on Comixology. If it's not available for purchase yet, it will be shortly. Comixology was in the process of getting it up there for 99 cents. Great. And it does have that story, Plato's Cave. Yes. By Jason Brubaker, which is great. And it's well worth checking out. 99 cents? Oh, that's a steal. So uh, if people want to get a preview of the other books and read that story, look for that on Comixology. It'll be well worth your time. Mark and Manny, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Great talking to you again. And coming up next on Thursday, my guest will be Meredith Finch talking about The Light Princess being published through Cave Pictures Publishing. I want to thank the comic book shop in Wilmington, Delaware for sponsoring this episode. And I want to thank you for joining me today for this bonus episode. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.